Michael Sturm, the creator of The Office and Parks and Recreation, made another masterpiece, NBC's The Good Place. The show lays out a moral vision that's surprisingly sophisticated and deeply informed by academic philosophy, a vision that puts learning and trying to do good front and center. Throughout four seasons, we follow the relationships of self-proclaimed dirtbag Eleanor Shellstrop, anxiety-prone Chitty Adagonye, wonderful hostess Tahani Al-Jamil, and fake drug dealer and subpar DJ Jason Mendoza. Joining us today to discuss The Good Place is Libertarianism.org's intellectual history editor and host of our new show, Portraits of Liberty, Paul Meany. Hi. And Jacob T. Levy, the Tomlinson Professor of Political Theory at McGill University. Hi. To start us off here, we're going to we're going to throw a softball question at you guys. What is moral philosophy and how does the good place make it digestible? Anyone? Well, I'm not the philosophy professor. <laughs> I, I can tell a story about how I first watched it. Uh, the reason I watched the show in the first place is because I saw a meme about it. There was a, a part where Chidi's talking to Eleanor and she uh, he's showing her all the different philosophers in the ancient world like Plato Aristotle and Socrates and then she's like why who cares about what Aristotle says who left him in charge and he's like Plato and so I showed that to people and then they started like they actually laughed at it which is a rare because philosophy jokes aren't funny normally and so then I started showing it to people to try and get them into moral philosophy because it's not always the easiest to read at all people actually make decisions it's not hypothetical scenarios like they actually have to act on them that's a big part of it and also the characters are a lot of fun and you get to see how they go through things. When I was reading about how the show creator came up, not only with the idea of the show, but kind of what the way he wanted to take it, um, he was saying that What We Owe Each Other, a book uh, written by Scanlon, was like the basis of his idea for the show. And he actually used Scanlon uh, Michael Schur, the creator, used Scanlon as like a, a consultant on the show almost. Um, do, have either of you uh, read that material or can you see that um, that material, what we owe each other, really coming through in the plot of the show? Uh, just Scanlon wasn't a consultant. He, he, read, he, he read what we owe to each other and there were other moral philosophers he knew who with whom he consulted. Uh, but But... Scanlon spent the the first year of the show not knowing what was going on when people started to mention to him, "Hey, I saw you on television." And it was only the I, I think I read that it was only the summer after the first season that Scanlon himself watched the show and became a fan. Oh, interesting. Okay, do you do you see that work coming through at all throughout the show? Because I know there were there were quite a few nods to it, whether his name was written on the chalkboard um, that Chidi Adagonye was using to teach Eleanor. It's uh, the book that she uses to preserve a message when they get their memories wiped. She puts it in it, uh, the message in the book. It's, it's the decisively important book that she knows will survive from one timeline to the next. So um, kind of the idea of his book, um, which is kind of as, used as a prop and kind of a backbone to the show, is the idea to act morally is to abide by principles that no one could reasonably reject. Um, and do you think that that comes that obviously comes to play a lot in this in the show because they're talking about um, being good, earning their spot in the good place? Um, because as many much of our audience for the show is going to know, is that they end up they think they're in the good place, but then they realize they uncover that they're actually in the bad place, being tortured. So the show really relies on this idea of 
being a good person or becoming a good person so that they can earn their keep, so to speak, into the good place. Do you think this type of moral theory or the other moral theories mentioned in the show are too demanding? The moral theory in the show that the so in the first few episodes when they explain the system of how you get into the good place, I took a screenshot and I have it up here. And Michael's explaining how they got in. He's like, there's a plus or a minus for every action you did and if it had a positive or a negative impact. And here are some of the examples of the plus actions. Step carefully over a flower bed for two <laughs> points. Or you can end slavery for 800,000 points. Scratch your elbow for nearly two points. But if you're going to be bad, they mention a lot of things. They keep mentioning how the bachelor minuses your points, which I take a lot of personal offense to. Uh, <laughs> They also have used Facebook as a verb for minus five, use the term bro code for minus eight, and stiff a waitress for minus six. So it's everything is calculated in this world, seemingly, and that's why Scanlan's different. I think now the show's over, we we should talk about the place of Scanlan and the place of all of the philosophy that Chidi taught, especially through the first season, differently from how Michael Schur talked about it season after season in the interviews. Because in the first season, when when the setup plot is Eleanor has to be learn Eleanor has to learn how to be good. She has to learn how to deserve to be in the good place. The show presents Chidi as being really the voice of morality, the one who makes that possible to be true. Um, and so he, what it is he teaches, and particularly his reliance on. Kant and on the kind of Kantianism that comes through Scanlan gets kind of taken for granted. But it gets a lot more complicated over the course of the show. It gets more complicated when we learn that Chidi isn't in the good place. It's not the case that knowing all that moral philosophy made him a good person. Um, Chidi is in the bad place too, for reasons that arose out of his preoccupation with doing the right thing. And the question of whether Scanlon's map of morality maps well onto the moral universe at the beginning of the show, I think is kind of strange and complicated. The, the point system, they never say it. The point system lines up well with morality, according to Scanlon. Um, and the point system over the course of the show, we come to think of as being not a very good map of morality at all. The universe's map of morality changes over the course of the show. And Chidi's account of morality changes over the course of the show, over the course of his lifetimes. So season by season, Schur would give these interviews and talk about his influence as he came to the show that encouraged us to think the show's morality and Scanlon's morality and Schur's morality were all the same. But I don't think it looks like that after four seasons. I think that got interestingly a lot more complicated than that. I definitely agree with that. And I think part of it is if you go back to, like you had mentioned in the first season, there's a lot of, we get a lot of scenes of Chidi, like literally at a chalkboard trying to teach Eleanor and specifically like Chidi is going back and forth with whether or not he has like an imperative to help Eleanor or if that, and like, and, and, and I, when I say imperative, I know um, something I was thinking about was Kant's categorical imperative, like no lying, no cheating, no stealing, after he had already known that um, Eleanor didn't belong in the good place. She, he, he didn't know if he was even able to help her 
kind of pretend to be there. And I think the from the differences between season one and season four, I think, if anything, the show got a lot more complicated. In the beginning, it was just Chidi kind of teaching moral philosophy on a chalkboard. And towards the end, it was much more how we developed our thoughts about not only the point system, but how complicated that type of system would even be. That, that's right. By the end of the show, we're not in any doubt that Chidi did the right thing in trying to help Eleanor. Indeed, Chidi trying to help Eleanor was the moral core that meant that everything survived over the course of 800 timelines and <laughs> eventually saved all of humanity. That, that, that he had that <laughs> level of kindness and humanity in him. So to the degree that the moral philosophy he carried around in his head made that a hard choice, so much the worse for the moral philosophy he was carrying around in his head. If, if Kant told him that he couldn't lie to protect someone from punishment because lying is wrong and punishment when it's deserved ought to be carried out, the show's ultimate moral message is not to that degree Kantian. And Chidi, by the end of the show, is to that degree not Kantian. Yeah, there's actually a really good part. I forget which season it's in. It's when um, Michael is having a midlife crisis and Eleanor runs up and she has all these different French existentialist books. She's like, which book will help him get out of this? He says, I don't think books are going to help in this case. And it's such a difference from the beginning, what Chidi was like before, who would always go to a book whenever he had a problem. See, see season two, Michael's existential despair. That's, it is one of my one. very favorite episodes. Yes. It's in the run of episodes that's really the pivot in the show. When the four humans have successfully outsmarted Michael 800 times, they've broken, <laughs> broken out of the uh, illusion that they were in the good place. And Michael's now facing an uprising from the demons around him. Um, and his immortal soul is on the line if it gets found out that he's rebooted 800 times. So he switches sides. And he says to the four humans, you need to help me, and then I will help you find a way into the good place. Eleanor says, we will help you, but only if you take moral philosophy classes with us and you learn how to be good. In, in this run of episodes, we get the brilliant subversion of the trolley problem when Michael is pretending to try to learn morality, but he's really bad at trying to learn morality <laughs> because he's a demon. But we also get his moment of existential despair when he says... I don't understand what the point of all this is. You're all going to die anyway. And Eleanor says, the fact that humans walk around knowing that we're all going to die someday is part of what gives it a point. That ends up being a really important message all the way at the end of the show. Uh, but Michael, when he finally understands it, when he finally contemplates himself being destroyed, he falls into an absolute pit of despair. Um, an existential <laughs> crisis that is then followed by a midlife crisis that is one of the funniest bits I've ever seen Ted Danson do. And it's when he really fully commits to being on the human side for something other than strategic self-interested reasons um, and starts the show on his long redemption and his much more interesting development as a character who's trying to make things better rather than just trying to save himself. Right, which is, I, I also thought this part of the show was pretty interesting. Um, I mean, I'm a fan of all the seasons, but I did like this this stretch of this show more so, partially because it, it just had this idea of like, you're bringing Michael over from the dark side, right? Michael is obviously a main character, but I think we don't, when they see 
how much people have changed or you look at character arcs throughout the show, Michael might not be the first person you think of in terms of changing because obviously we follow the four characters and we feel deeply for the for the circumstances that they are in. But I think Michael is the, has a more interesting character arc and character development throughout the show. But I also, while you were talking, was thinking about Another part during during this segment of the show that Eleanor is kind of wrestling with this idea that's essentially moral dessert. Like if she does something good, she should be rewarded for it. And she was like, I think she's sitting at a bar and she just wanted like an award for like doing good things. And I think the show says kind of a lot about doing good. This idea that you do good and you get these points like a reward. And that that's not really how it works. Like people are good to, to be good. Right. Um, and I was kind of wondering what you guys thought of, thought of the idea of moral dessert throughout the show and what the, what the show message is on that front. Well, when I thought about the show at first, there was a part where they say, uh, we have to wipe their memories because if they know they're going to go to heaven or the good place, they're not going to do it the same way. They're going to do it for the wrong reasons. And so I think the show focuses a lot on the right and wrong reasons for doing things. Like I think of all the characters of a uh, innate goodness, like I think uh, Jason is one of the better people. I, <laughs> uh, it, it sounds weird at first, but hold the phone. I think he's just a little, he's a little silly. He's not like a bad person. Oh, he's yeah, yeah, easy to convince. And there's like, there's points. He's actually one of the easiest people to convince to go to uh, Australia for this experiment that Chidi and Simona are working on. He's actually one of the easier people because he was already trying to figure out his life. People like Jason are quite innately good, even if they're a little stupid. People like Tahani are very intelligent, but even though they actually bring a lot of good to the world, they still aren't admitted to the good place. So Tani spends her entire life uh, like doing amazing things for people, donating constantly to charity, but she does it all for the wrong reasons. She does it for recognition. So I think the show focuses a lot on the idea that doing the right thing, it doesn't really, it doesn't always do much for you and life isn't particularly fair, but there's good reasons to do it anyway. You don't need to always have a big thumbs up or a pat on the back for what you do. That's hard though. That's hard to deal with. Because then morality, what's the point? Yeah, I, I, I think that goes consistently through even when over the f- course of the first couple seasons, the, the moral map of the universe is a little bit of a mess. Right. Um, <laughs> the, the point system as we see it laid out in those first three episodes, um, there's nothing in there about don't do it for vain reasons. And when eventually Tani complains, what on earth am I doing in the bad place? I raised $600 million for charity and they make her realize she did it for vain reasons and corrupt motives. None of that was on the chart about the good place. And the point system also doesn't really make sense of the, you have one fatal flaw theory that ends up creeping in that the reason Eleanor's in the bad place is because she's selfish. And the reason Chidi's in the bad place is because indecisive. And the reason Tani is, is because she's vain um, and they need to overcome those character flaws. See how you didn't mention one for Jason? Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they, this, this, this is consistently the point at which a character like Michael just laughs and looks at him and says, really, you have to ask? <laughs> um, but so, so I think the, the affirmative vision about what counts as doing good gets a little muddled in, in the original point system universe. But the, the denial of moral desert really does go straight through. Um, you, you can't do it if your aim is vanity. You can't do it if your aim is eternal reward. Um, and you can't do it if your aim is 
the universe will pay you back immediately. And that's Eleanor's view after those six months is my life is hard. It turns out that doing the right thing just isn't fun. And I'm still kind of broke and people still kind of give me a hard time. And shouldn't, shouldn't things be getting easier because I'm doing the right thing. And Michael then reappearing uh, kind of sotto voce as uh, Sam Malone as an angel, uh, as a bartender, talks her out of that and talks her down from that point of view. Uh, and of all the different things the show endorses, it really never endorses moral desert, um, except maybe in the character of Doug Forsett. The other part I was going to say is that when uh, Michael goes as the bartender, he points her towards Chidi's lecture on what we owe to each other, the Scanlon book. Yes, that's right. And so it's always piled on that moral desert. One of the problems I had actually with the original point system was when you went to heaven, I know they were all fake people. They weren't really, um, they weren't really good people. They were just demons pretending, but they were all like human rights lawyers and they were charity workers and these amazing people who did such brilliant things. And I was like, well, I'll never get in at this rate. <laughs> you know, it's impossible for people who are just, maybe if you're just not that smart or just not that hardworking, it's kind of like a sin. Ignorance is a sin almost. That seems a little unfair too. Right. And kind of going off that point, I thought it was interesting as much as, as much as this show is about like morals and the, and the individual, like the decisions that individuals make for the most part, it's everything they overcome. Everything the main characters overcome throughout the show is all done together. More so relationships are the center of the story rather than like personal. It's We don't see like, as many personal decisions once they actually find out they're in the bad place, which I always thought was interesting because it's always the, the group was trying to help for the betterment of the group. And it was always like a very much the sense that we have to help each other out. And they go on all these different excursions through different weird dimensions and whatnot. And it was never the fact, and it, it was never the case where one of them was like, Oh no, I can just do good on my own. I thought that was kind of interesting. I could be more from an entertainment standpoint because they want to develop these characters' relationships. But the concept that like you're going up with all of your points to the system to try and get in, to try your win your place into the good place, but they were all helping each other and, and in essence, affecting each other's point totals if you're going off that. Because um, in, in theory, if you're going off of this point system, you, like we, I'm sure we're going to talk in length about Dog Fusset later, Um would kind of isolate yourself and just to try and get the most points. But the show is very centered around the relationships of these five to six people. If you're counting Janet as a person. Um, yes, we do. Not a, not a, she's not a person. Uh, she's not an AI. I saw an interesting article that was trying to argue that she was an, an AI. But um, anyway, so I just thought it was interesting that it's more so that we get so drawn to this group and how the group is doing um, versus individuals, if that makes sense. Even though I know, Paul, you have an affinity for Jason, which I just don't, I don't feel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's, that, that, that's right. And it's reinforced through the whole show. Um, officially, the reason, the way they defeat Michael the first time and then the next day, under times is in the moment of exposing this is the bad place. But Michael explains later, the way they got there was always that those characters connected. Michael's, Michael's intention in creating the neighborhood was the humans will torture each other. It was Sartre, hell is other people. I'm going to find four people, put them together, and they will torture each other forever. And he fails 
because these four people drawn to each other over and over and over again, 800 times, help each other and make each other better. That's absolutely the, the moral core of what goes wrong with Michael's experiment. And also on top of that is there's, um, whenever people have their moral low point, it's always because they push people away and sulk alone. It's only through other people that they ever come back from these lows. No one, no, no one ever solves a problem alone per se. It's always in groups. How about we? How about we head up and talk about uh, Doug Fawcett? Um, I think we get the most of him. Is it season three? Towards season three, I think. And obviously, there's there's a lot at play here because he's essentially making every decision to make others happy, and he's trying to do trying to make the best decision to earn him the most points. And I think essentially he's the epitome of like a lot of what uh, Peter Singer's ideology is and um, utilitarianism in general, but the kind of idea of like, he's Doug is trying to do the most, the most good. And he has it so figured out that he, do, he does things like uh, doesn't give a snail a name in case it already has one. Um, <laughs> or he like lets this like adolescent uh, take advantage of him. He like does his laundry and whatever the, uh, the young boy asks and uh, Michael and Janet go to visit him to learn more about how bad the point system is because even him who's living in isolation without running water <laughs> and, trying to make all these decisions to earn him the most points still can't even get him enough points to make it into the good place. And I thought it was interesting because the core of that episode or those two episodes was about how interconnected we've become. So the decisions we make, we may think they're good, but they could have bad unintended consequences, especially as our world has become more and more connected. So I think the example they use is like buying a tomato and the, the bad unintended consequences that tomato could have, even though like it's healthy for you or um, so on and so forth. Um, so I was wondering what, what you guys all thought of um, this kind of not, I, I would say it was kind of like an attack or um, their way to uh, kind of combat this, the utilitarian Peter Singer type ideology. So the, one of the really neat things about how we get Doug Forsett is they don't yet know that he's not getting into the good place. That comes two episodes later. At the time, Doug Forsett is famously the one who figured out almost the whole complete point system when he was on an acid trip in the 1970s. <laughs> um, and so as far as they know, he's a moral hero when they go to visit him. And the fact that the episode then portrays him as not leading a good life, independent of the point system, that Michael and Janet are able to conclude on their own before they know he's going to the bad place. This isn't what a human life is supposed to be. You're not actually living. You're not actually living a life that has any flourishing to it. You're not doing anything that makes yourself happy. Um, is an indictment in narrative terms and from the character's perspective before we find out that it doesn't even work in terms of the universe's moral system. That's Bernard Williams' critique of utilitarianism. People actually have to have their lives of their own to live. It, you aren't just an instrument to serve everyone else's total pile of utility. Each person has to have a life that's worth, worth living, and therefore utilitarianism falls into a kind of contradictory collapse because if everyone just runs around trying to be an endless 
instrument for everyone else's ends, no one actually has any ends. And Doug doesn't have any ends. All he has is this conviction from his acid trip decades ago that this is the way to get into the good place. And even then, he's actually relying on moral desert as well, which is another problem. Yeah, it's it's true. They they never mention that. Um, they never mention that having reached this conclusion, none of his points should count at all, according to what we've been told. Yeah, and there's also, I had a friend who, um, he became a very classical utilitarian, and we were chatting one day, and I was saying, you know, he was studying English literature in college, and I was saying, wouldn't you just become an investment banker and then just donate most of your cash? And he's like, yeah, but that wouldn't be too much fun. <laughs> so that's, yeah, you have to lead your own life, even the most stringent utilitarians you can't really spend your entire life for other people like poor old Doug does uh well then i was going to try to get you back to where you were nudging us toward toward the tomato problem um and the 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 problem of unintended consequences and indirect effects um which doug doesn't present front and center um he's aware of them and that's why he's living on the radishes that he grows in his backyard <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. um but but that that comes more front and center toward the end of season three um when first michael discovers that no one's gotten into the good place at all for 500 years roughly speaking since the rise of global commerce and then when the judge goes to earth to understand why this is and comes back and says, it's so hard. You don't have time to figure out what the ethical tomato is to buy. Um, you want to buy a chicken sandwich. And it turns out buying <laughs> a chicken sandwich means you hate gay people. It's all <laughs> too complicated. You, you, you can't possibly map out all of the indirect moral consequences. Therefore, the system's broken. Uh, I felt that part of the show was, I, I felt it was very odd. You're punished for all the unintended consequences you cause, but you're not rewarded for all the unintended good you do through global commerce i felt that was a very unfair angle to take and and that that was the moment when i had to most extend my faith to the show to say everything changes about every three episodes on the show so i'm going to trust that this is not actually the show's ultimate conclusion and it wasn't that was a way of saying that the point system was a bad approximation of morality it it really did look like for those couple of episodes they were saying well, the fact of global trade and the fact of social interconnectedness makes us all terrible. But but that wasn't where the show ended up. That would have been an incredibly disappointing ending. <laughs> I had a very similar fear because at the get-go, the show is very, even like the fake good place they make, it's always these small communities of 400 and something people. It's always small. Everything's small. It's never big and interconnected and global. It's always going down to that bare bones kind of grassroots. And I that's great, but it's also nice to have the world at your fingertips too. And so I was worried as well at that point. That was when I was kind of hemming and hawing about the show. But yes, they brought it back, thank God. They brought it back. And I, I did talk myself at that point into the view that said, I have faith, given how good this show has been and how clever it's been and how much it's changed. I have faith that this is not the, the last word. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think in the maybe in the first season or so, I was a little bit worried that they were, especially with such dense topics, they were going to almost like we talked about in the very beginning of very beginning of our interview here about um, making it almost too digestible. So watering it down so that it didn't have the depth that I would appreciate, so to speak. But I think 
the show as a whole did a did a particularly good job of not only hitting a wide variety of philosophies, so to speak, from the trolley problem to utilitarianism, but also bringing it back to like an easier idea to understand about doing good and helping others. But I think there are a few points in the show where free will is is talked about, but kind of left to the side a little bit. And I kind of wanted to, to dig into that a little bit. So for our last episode, we ha- we had on guests to talk about Westworld. And obviously, free will is a much bigger topic in that show than it is in this one. But there are a few points throughout this show that Michael brought up this idea of free will. And I think it, it, it blends in nicely um, to the, the discussion of unintended good decisions make unintended bad consequences. I was kind of wondering what you guys think the larger show says about free will. Uh, it seems that it takes, I, in my opinion, I think it, uh, there's a point where Michael's talking to Eleanor and Eleanor's going on about how free will doesn't exist and it's all very unfair. And he just dumps a drink in her head. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's kind of, a, I think, a lot of people's opinion, including my own, is that you kind of have to believe it exists and you have to act as if it did and take that responsibility on yourself, even if maybe you don't have all the control in the world. To take that responsibility as a moral being, I think is a big part of the show. And he emphasizes that the, the way the plot unfolded for the first two seasons in terms of the show's universe was just the human's free will overriding all of his supernatural planning and powers over and over again. I was kind of hoping that we could jump in and talk about the end because the end is obvious. The end of the show, um, the end of season four particularly, is um, very poignant in the sense that it was this, we spent gosh, four seasons trying to fight our way into the good place. And we kind of got this feeling once we got there that, oh, we, we completed our journey. We like made it to our goal, but it wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't as happy as you would have thought it would be. And it wasn't, the show didn't tie up in a rainbow, the idea that like, oh, they made it to the good place. And it's like happily ever after. Um, So what did you guys think about the ending of the show? I thought the ending was absolutely brilliant. It was such a, it was such a great ending. I never, expe- I expected from the original season that they'd eventually get to the good place and it would just be like a, a cut to black and they don't show anything. But the fact that they actually showed the good place and then grappled with the problems of a utopian heaven, I thought that was just, that was brilliant. And it was something that for me, I never expected them to do whatsoever. Once you saw it, you, you could see why, yes, this show would go that way, um, look, they've gone through every divine and supernatural realm and they've fixed all of the problems and there's one more problem for them to fix. But I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming at all. And I thought it worked tremendously well. I'm in the same boat as you guys. I didn't necessarily predict it. I had a feeling we would get to at least see the good place, whether it be for like the second half of the last episode or whatever. But I think it really brought in this idea that Jacob had mentioned earlier too, is this idea that without endings nothing necessarily matters. And Eleanor kind of hints at this earlier on in season four, and um, especially towards the end that once she lets Chidi go, it's this idea that like endings are really sad, but without them, there's, there's nothing really, um, nothing really matters or there's nothing you're really working towards. And I think that was like a very good, especially from a, from a show that's a sitcom, right? I think it was a very good way to wrap up the show that was one in a way that was unpredictable, but it was also in a way that kind of 
left me like satisfied. Like I found, I found recently that a lot of the, my favorite shows I've seen the endings of, I'm like not necessarily satisfied or I'm disappointed because I feel like I could have written the ending of the show a lot better. Um, but this is one of those that I really thought they took care and consideration with not only the relationships we've built with these characters, but kind of being realistic of the idea that endings like this need to happen. I just thought it, I thought it was one of the most unexpected, definitely the actually probably, yeah, definitely the most unexpected scenes um, from the show. But it provided narrative payoff in one of the ways that the show continually impressed with, um, because we've met this, committee of good place goofball administrators a couple of times before and it would turn out strange if the good place were properly speaking heaven and it were running perfectly run by this committee of goofballs um the fact that the good place doesn't work makes it make more sense that the good place angels we've met um are kind of a bunch of incompetence um unable to solve the problems and the fact that they run off and leave Michael in charge of it uh, because they know they can't handle it. That provides narrative payoff to these characters we'd met a couple of times already over the course of more than a season. Yeah. You need to be human to make a human heaven per se. I think a big part of the show for me, like uh, what I took from the ending was that a lot of the, the high points of life are about improving and progress and making yourself a better person. I think the show is very firmly placed in the idea of, the good parts of life are obviously interacting with other people, but also striving to make yourself a better person. Not always succeeding, but at least striving for it. I think uh, at the beginning of the show, I thought it would be much more about Chidi just teaching everyone. But that's only really for the first season. I thought a lot about the philosopher Michel de Montaigne because he openly admitted himself, he was in the 16th century in France, very smart guy, but he admitted that he found Plato boring and lots of books he'd just give up on or wouldn't really finish. But you know, I, I liked that a lot. I, I thought that message came through in the show that it's not about educating yourself through book learning so practicing and living but once you can't really improve anymore there's not a huge amount to do with the world but i there was another quote i had from john Stromill that i kept thinking about when i was re-watching the show recently uh he was saying he talks a lot about man as a progressive being and he says well not man humanity as a progressive being the source of everything respectable either as an intellectual or moral being is that we are capable of rectifying mistakes by discussion and experience so I like that a lot. I like the idea that the show is much more about striving for moral change. I agree with you on that. I think it's it's about progress and, pro- and progression, not even through the seasons, but as we saw um, the characters take steps. And it was funny. I, there were quite a few scenes where Eleanor like cited something that Chidi taught her, and she was like almost shocked that she like said that in like real in real life. And it came to her. She's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm learning!" Like, um, which is funny, funny in itself. But I think I agree with that. It's the show is more about the progression than it is about being perfect, which I think definitely really hit on um, towards the end or when they were trying to figure out how the, the point system could be remedied. And I think ultimately they made this idea that, you know, we've progressed so much or you've become a better person. It doesn't matter that it's by 10 points or 300 points. It's just the idea that you've, you've done good. And I think there's the show in a sense says there's no real way to measure the goodness that you've done just as long as you're, you're trying to work that way. And um, I think that's also what made the show so interesting. Yes. So before we get to the conclusion, how we got to the conclusion, um, this is the the moment when it just seemed like what was already my favorite show was just bending over backwards to cater to me. 
um, they they wake Chidi up with 800 memories, 800 lifetimes worth of memories, tell him, we have a handful of minutes in which for you to fix the point system and the moral structure of the universe or the world's going to be destroyed. What does he say? He says, get me a copy of Judith Sklar's Ordinary Vices. <laughs> what goes onto the blackboard as he's talking his way through his first attempt at a solution is Judith Sklar and Ordinary Vices and the refusal of cruelty, um, which is different from that ultimate message that we get in the final couple of episodes about your soul progressing. Uh, it, it's not quite this um, keep reliving lifetimes and your soul will get better and better and you will overcome your character flaws. It, the central problem with any variation of the point system that leaves the bad place intact and that sends almost all of humanity to it is that it is centrally cruel. It means that a lifetime's worth of relatively ordinary moral infractions leads to eternity of endless, infinite torture. Um, and that before we can fix anything else, before we can worry about what makes us better and better, we have to rule out that kind of cruelty. Now, Schlar is deeply indebted to Montaigne, who Paul mentioned a moment ago, um, and is really uh, not the kind of Kantian Chidi had been through his previous lifetimes. Um, for Kant, punishment is a moral obligation. If there are two people left alive and one of, uh, at the end of the world and one of them is a murderer, the one who is not a murderer has an absolute unconditional duty to put the murderer to death because it is an absolute duty to make sure that appropriate punishments are carried out. Schlar's central concern is the avoidance of cruelty. Um, and that includes real sharp limitations on the vengeful desire to punish. The interpersonal kindness isn't her central message. It's that the social structure must not be actively cruel. Uh, and for that to be the crucial stage that Chidi goes through and walks everyone else through before they get to, and we shouldn't just avoid punishment, we should actively allow moral progress. That was, that was just served up to me on a platter. That was, um, as far as I was concerned, that overcame my objections to the Kantianism, my objections to the stuff about global commerce and trade, um, all of my concerns about each of the moral systems that had been tried out over the course of the first couple seasons, because Schlar offers a meta rule. If your moral system licenses cruelty, that's a bad moral system. Go back and start again. I just loved the show because it was... I showed it to my parents because they were wondering why I read these very long and apparently boring books. And so I decided instead of asking him to read something like Aristotle, which it's it's pretty rough at times, I decided I'll just show them the TV show and said they actually enjoyed it a lot and they got into the ideas much more because of it. So that's what I, I just loved about the show that was accessible. I also love the show because it was I just I really liked the idea of the moral progress being be, like the kind of the crux of the show almost. And I love at the ending maybe this is me reading too much into something that's supposed to be symbolic. But in the <laughs> ending, Eleanor steps through the gates. She kind of, you know, she ends her life, I guess you could call it. And her spirit kind of goes off. And there's a guy, he's looking through his letters. And he throws one in the bin because it's not his. And then, like, Eleanor's kind of 
spirit, let's say, like touches off him, picks up the letter, brings it back to uh, Michael, who is now a human. Michael gives him a lot of praise, which maybe the moral dessert there was him taking take it sleazy. But I liked the idea that it was almost kind of like they talked about conscience and the idea of like an impartial spectator. I like that a lot. I, but I also really enjoyed about the show is that it focused mainly not on things being right or wrong on their own. It was always based on circumstance and your relationships with people, which I always thought was a much better way to tackle philosophy as opposed to just, is this wrong? Yes, no. I much prefer the way The Good Place handled it. And I did it in a way that was funny. So something that I've been locked into recently is, well, besides watching reruns of Survivor because I have too much time at home, is that I've been reading this book called Where the Crowdads Sing. Apparently got really great reviews on Goodreads. So I'm about 150 pages in. It's a fiction book uh, placed in, I want to say the 1950s-ish. And I'm only 100 pages in, so there's not a whole lot going on. Um, But so far, I've learned about this little girl who lives in uh, swamp country, and her dad and siblings abandoned her. So it's kind of like a murder mystery type book. Um, Anyway, but I've really enjoyed it. And I've had, since we're working remotely, I've had some time to take up some fiction reading rather than keeping it purely nonfiction books. So that's kind of been uh, a nice, uh, nice change of pace. I'll throw it to Jacob. What have you been up to recently? Um, What I've most recently been watching was I finally was motivated after the end of The Good Place to go back and watch Veronica Mars, which I've meant to do for 15 years and had never really gotten around to. And I'm into season three now and and enjoying it a lot. And um, I'm surprised that I don't keep seeing Eleanor creeping through. Uh, There's there's a similar kind of cynicism that characterizes Veronica and Eleanor and Kristen Bell's performances, which is really kind of funny given what an earnest person Kristen Bell seems to be and just a a kind of soft, gooey hearted, loving person. Um, So there's there's a little bit of a cynical edge to the both of them, but they're very different characters and I don't end up seeing one in the other the way that I often will seeing one actor perform different roles over time the thing that i've read most recently that i really liked i'm i'm in the middle of reading uh the end of the wolf hall trilogy hillary mantel's the mirror and the light but i'm not through that yet to evaluate it uh, but i did read the italian teacher by tom rackman who had a big novel a big fiction hit a couple of years ago with the imperfectionist and one thing the italian teacher has in common with stuff we were talking about with respect to the good place is its protagonist is the son of a great artist and he's spending decades struggling with the question of how his life matters in the shadow of his father. He ends up orienting several decades of his life around various versions of um, thinking about writing a biography of his father, trying to promote the, the value of his father's art to the art world. Um, shaping himself around the greatness of his father and then struggling with the question of where's the worth in his life? Uh, and the book doesn't offer as clear an answer as I think the Doug Forsett episode offers in The Good Place, but it's struggling with a similar question. Uh, how much does your life have to be yours 
for it really to be a life that you're living um, and how much orientation toward other people is too much. Paul, what have you been consuming lately? <laughs> I do not watch a whole lot of TV. That's my problem. I should probably watch more. But I have been re-watching one of the best shows ever made, Avatar The Last Airbender. Anyone? Oh my gosh. <laughs> they're making a Netflix show, so I decided I have to rewatch it all again for the 11th time, just in case I missed anything. Um, but that's an absolutely brilliant show. It's about, uh, there's, it's like a completely fantasy world where some people are able to bend one of the four elements, earth, fire, water, and air. And it's about the avatars, a person can bend all four. And then the avatar is frozen in time for a hundred years and the whole war ravages the world for about a hundred years. And he wakes up and it's about him trying to fix the world afterwards. And it's brilliant. Great show. But there's not much depth to it. Uh, well, there's, there's lots of depth to it, but nothing I can really talk about without going into a very long half hour praise of the show. On the other hand, I'm rereading Roadside Picnic by the Strugatsky brothers, which is after Avatar sounding nice and fun. It's about aliens visiting the world and leaving kind of their scraps of technology left behind, but they're so far advanced that uh, they compare us to like little ants who look at packets of chips and chocolate bars afterwards, after people have thrown away from a picnic. So there's things amazing things that we could never imagine and could never defy the laws of physics. That's about the people who go into these areas where the aliens were and try to retrieve what they call the artifacts in the zone. There's also a movie about it in a Russian that's brilliant too. And as a bonus one, uh, the game Animal Crossing came out. Oh my gosh, you with, and Landry love this game. Yes, which is an extremely relaxing game. If only everyone could know that video games are not violent. You can just fish and sit in a tree stump and have a good time. <laughs> oh my gosh okay well before landry and paul tried to convince me to get animal crossing i have not bought it yet but maybe the longer i work from home maybe i'll go out and buy it thanks for listening with everything going on around the world we know people are lonely and scared we hope that pop and lock makes you laugh and makes you think and in the words of chitty adagonia himself it turns out life isn't a puzzle that can be solved one time and it's done. You wake up every day and you solve it again. If you enjoyed our show today, let us know on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by Landry Ayers as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.